We're in a series on spiritual warfare, and I wanted to share something with you. I told you last week to be reading Romans chapter 6, because that's where we'll be this morning. But I want to share a story to illustrate a battle that we all face. You know, after we become believers in Jesus, and I'm talking to you this morning as someone who has trusted Christ as your Savior. That's why we come together as a church body. We grow in Him and we learn things about Him. But if you hang with me for just a few minutes, I'll try not to preach long, I'll share a principle with you this morning that totally changed my life. Been through seminary, heard all kinds of stuff, translated the book of Romans, this, that, and the other, but nobody ever shared this principle that I'm going to share with you this morning until later in life, actually preparing right before this series to teach a course over in East Africa. I came across a book And a man said something that radically changed the way I thought and even the way I lived. But we all struggle with battling the flesh. We all like to get even, don't we? There was a lady named Mildred who was a church gossip, and she was the self-appointed monitor of the church's morals. She kept sticking her nose into other people's business, and several members never approved of her extracurricular activities, she, but they feared her enough to maintain their silence. Mildred, however, made the mistake when she accused Frank, a new member of the church, of being an alcoholic after she saw his truck being parked near an old bar. She emphatically told Frank and several others in the church that everyone was seeing it would know that he was an alcoholic and what he was doing. Well, Frank, being a man of few words, stared at her for a moment and just turned and walked away. He didn't explain, he didn't defend, and he didn't deny. Frank quietly parked his pickup that evening in front of Mildred's house, walked home, and left it there all night. (laughs) Don't mess with Frank. Now, why is it that we have this craving and urge to get even? We are in a series on spiritual warfare, and we talked about the three great enemies of the believer were the world, the flesh, and the devil. Last week, we talked about the devil and how he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden and how he appealed to natural desires that we have, and he twisted those and distorted our view of God, and he lured Eve into being deceived. Adam, of course, was not deceived. If you read the book of Romans, he knew exactly what he was doing. But he did not want to be alone from Eve, and he partook, and sin entered the world through one man. We then have a battle with a nature that is dead toward God. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, we believe on Him for eternal life, we have a new nature living inside of us. He gives us His new nature. But there's an old nature that still lives inside of us. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. We want to do good, but we do evil. And these two battle and war against each other. Paul encourages us in the book of Galatians not to gratify the desires of the flesh, what he would call the sin nature. Listen to what he writes. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. 
We don't have to guess what the works of the flesh are. What are they? Listen to these lists that Paul gives. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, that would be frank, strife, jealousy, fits of anger and rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and anything like these, Paul says. So if we ever have to wonder what it means to walk in the flesh or what it means to be pulled into the desire of the flesh, listen to me, there's you a good list to start from. Now, hear me carefully because Paul's going to say something to believers now, not unbelievers, to believers that will impact your eternity. Because as a believer in Jesus, you are living this life to determine where your position will be in the next. It's not a question of whether you'll be in God's presence, whether you'll be saved, whether your sins will be forgiven. It's a question of what will you be doing there in the eternal kingdom. Now listen to what Paul says. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what does he mean by that? That's a whole sermon in itself, and I promised you I'd preach on that one day for those who remember it, and I haven't got there yet. But here's what he says. Christian, if you live your life dominated by the flesh and you give in to the sin nature, the day that you see Jesus in the eternal kingdom, you are going to lose your inheritance in that eternal kingdom. He doesn't say you won't be in the kingdom. He says you'll lose your inheritance your reward, everything that you live in this life for, you will squander away by giving yourself over to the flesh. He writes a whole chapter in the book of Romans, chapter 6, on how to battle your flesh as a believer. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Listen to the key verse in Romans chapter 6. Verses 12 and 13. I put it on the screen for you, or you can look in God's Word. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. You get the picture here? Reigning. There's an idea that the heart of man is a kingdom. And inside your heart is a throne. And there's two things that want to sit on the throne of your heart. One is your sin nature, and the other is your Savior. And whichever one you let sit on the throne of your heart will be determined by what you produce in your life. Every one of us face temptations and challenges of this list of the lust of the flesh. Every person here. When you look around to your left and your right this morning, don't look over and say, oh, I wish I was like such and such. They don't ever battle with that. That's a lie. Because they have a nature just like you. Every one of us have that pull and desire in our heart to serve self, 
to dethrone our Savior and put ourselves back on the throne, whether it be for pleasure or whether it be for whatever, and there's a battle. Paul says, do not let sin reign, sit on the throne in your flesh, in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. You see what's happening? So every believer has this choice Which nature is going to rule my life? Paul says, don't let it be the sin nature. Don't let it be the one that that drags you into the lust of the flesh. Do not present your members to sin as, I'm going to read here, you ready? Weapons of righteousness. The ESV translates the members of your body as instruments. That is a word for a weapon. There is a warfare going on in your life, every day of your life, that wants to take your bodily members, whether it's your hands, your mind, your eyes, your mouth, and use them as weapons for the sin nature. Paul says, do not let the members of your body be used as weapons for unrighteousness. Instead, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Are y'all with me? As a believer, you have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So here is the battle that every Christian faces. By the way, there was a mother who suspected her son, who claimed to be a believer, of living unrighteously. And so she decided she would visit her son, and he came over to her home for dinner. And then she went back over to his home for dinner. Well, she found out that her son lived with a female roommate named Maria. So during the course of the meal, his mother couldn't help but notice how pretty Anthony's roommate was. Over the course of the evening, while watching the two interact, she started to wonder if there was more between Anthony and his roommate than met the eye. So reading this mom's thoughts, Anthony volunteered, I know what you must be thinking, Mom, but I assure you Maria and I are just roommates. About a week later, Maria came to Anthony saying, Ever since your mother came to dinner, I've been been unable to find the silver sugar bowl. You don't suppose your mother took it from us when she came for dinner, do you? Well, I doubt it, Anthony said, but I'll email her just to be sure. So he sat down the road and email, and he wrote, Dear Mama, I'm not saying that you did take the sugar bowl from my house, and I'm not saying that you did not take it, but the fact remains that it has been missing ever since you were here for dinner your loving son, Anthony. A few days later, Anthony received a response email from his mother, which read, Dear son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Maria, and I'm not saying that you do not sleep with Maria, but the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the sugar bowl placed there by me. Don't mess with mama. She knows your sin nature. Do not 
Let the members of your body be used as members of unrighteousness. What a culture we live in. What, what a day for a believer to be launched out into the world that is infatuated by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. How is a young believer, or even another, any believer, pushed out into this world ever able to war against the flesh? Quite a way to think, isn't it? Well, this is not mine. This came from Crew. This is uh, the college ministry. I thought it would be a good way to illustrate what we're talking about here. But the self-directed life, how do you know whether you're using your members for unrighteousness? Well, look at these little charts that they give. And the throne here is the picture of the heart. The S is self or sin nature. And it says that when self is on the throne, Christ is outside the life. Doesn't mean he hasn't saved you outside the life. So the result are interests are directed by self, often resulting in discord and frustration. Now hear me for a moment. This would save a lot of Christian counseling. There are a lot of believers who are all keyed up, worried, discord, frustration. And one of the main reasons is because who's on the throne of the life Now, if self is on the throne of the life, this is kind of building on Paul's list, listen to what happens. We could have a legalistic attitude. We could be overrun by impure thoughts, filled with jealousy, guilt, worry, discouragement, a critical spirit, frustration, aimlessness in life, fear, ignorance of our spiritual heritage and what has been entrusted to us. Unbelief, disobedience, loss of love for God and others, poor prayer life, and no desire for Bible study. You want to know who's on your throne? Well, look at that list. It'll tell us, won't it? Isn't it scary? But what about if Christ is in our life and He's on the throne of our heart? Look at what happens. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. We could add gentleness. But our life is Christ-centered. It's empowered by the Spirit. Introduces others to Christ we want to share. Has an effective prayer life. Understands God's Word. Trusts and obeys God. And this is the difference between who's on the throne. So now get to the point. Because the title of the message today is the law of the jungle. What is the law of the jungle? How do you present yourself, as Paul says, present your members to Christ? There is a fundamental truth that you have to know, and that is what your position in Christ is. When you understand that, you realize, you know what? I do not have to give in to my sin nature. There are a lot of believers that do not know that. As a matter of fact, one man wrote this, and listen to this. This is kind of scathing to a preacher. He said, we, meaning teachers and preachers, Do God's sheep a great disservice by appealing for their dedication before explaining their emancipation from the sin nature? In other words, it would be like me going to Romans 12.1 and say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself, your body, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then I say, let's all come up and pray and you dedicate your life to Jesus. He said, you know what? When you ask people to come up and do that, you're asking them to do that based upon one 
primary thing, and that is based upon your love for Jesus. Now listen to what this guy says. He says, you as a believer don't love him enough to say no to your sin nature. And that's not good enough. It will never get the job done. We do, we do our people a great disservice by explaining their dedication and expecting it instead of explaining their emancipation. You don't have to sin. Now listen to what he says. Until emancipation is understood, the sincere believer does not realize what he is dedicating to the Lord. He presents the old man to Christ, the self-life, thinking that his love for Christ will lead him to holiness and sanctification. It will not. Our love for Christ will not sustain us in service. Why? Because we love sin more. Listen to what he writes. Is that a shocking statement to you? It was to me when I first read it. He says, perhaps so, but it's true. And if you have ever been caught in the headlock of sin, you know whereof I speak. The headlock of sin negates our love for Christ as a powerful enough motive for victory. Oh, the little, are there such sins? Yes. But I am talking about the headlock, the warden of sin prison. No matter how much you feel you love Christ, there are times when you and I love sin more than we do Jesus. No, our love and gratitude for Him will never carry us through a life of dedication. Then what will, he asks? What is the basis of our dedication? Where can I find a solid base for consecration? The answer, of course, is in Romans 6, and it's your position in Jesus Christ. When you came in here this morning, you didn't ask for an engineer's spec sheet to find out how much the columns in this building would support. You didn't ask us to provide for you anything to let you know what the position of this roof is and will it handle the load so that it doesn't come in and fall on you. Whether you know it or not, you're seated in a building that you are trusting positional truth that the engineer who designed this building said that the roof would not collapse and fall in on you. Now the wind has blown a few times and we've wondered, haven't we? But it's never fallen in because it'll support the load and the storm. When you understand positional truth, you can come into a building like this and guess what? You don't sit there and bite your fingernails wondering if the roof is going to fall in. Why? Because you know both from experience and the practical side of engineering that this roof and this building were designed to withstand the weight. That is positional truth. Now hear me carefully. When you realize that you trusted Christ as your Savior and He has the new man living inside of you and you do not have to yield your members to sin, you do not have to do that. If you do it, you choose to do it. But you do not have to do that. That revolutionary truth of your position in Christ transforms us. We don't have to worry about the weight crushing. We don't have to worry about the sin dominating. Listen to me. According to Paul and God's Word and the Spirit of God, you can say no. You do have a choice whether you're going to yield your members to righteousness or unrighteousness.
So how can a believer free himself from the power and control of the sin nature? Well, Paul shares that we're free from God's wrath in Romans 5, and we have freedom from sin in Romans 6. Five steps very quickly this morning that are going to help us see how we are to get out of the trap of the sin nature. Step one, we've got to know something. If you don't know this, you will be a slave to not understanding what is going on in life. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, this truth. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to it. Now don't read over that too fast. What do we know? You have to know this. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, something happened inside of you. We call it being born again or reborn, spiritual birth, the new man. Do you understand that God gave something to you when you trusted Christ as your Savior that helped you? Because when Jesus went to the cross, you were on the cross with him. When he rose from the dead, you were there with him, positionally. I know you weren't there historically, but positionally you were. And the same life that he died, you died. And the same resurrection he has, you have. You have that power, and one day you'll actually have that experience of the resurrection. But listen to what he says. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved by it. Do you know that this morning? You do not have to do that. You do not have to sin because you have been co-crucified with Christ. What's the second step that you have to do? You have to believe it. I mean, this is, this is truth that first of all you have to know and second of all, you have to believe. Look at what Paul writes in Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Him. Now watch closely. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we also not will live with Him. Are you all looking at the text? This is hard, isn't it? Hard. This is something you have to believe. If we died with Him, like I said back in verse 6, and we've accepted Him as our Savior, do you not know that we will also live with He lives in us. He is empowering us. He is giving us the strength to get through this. We have to know it. We have to believe it. And now we come to the good old banking term. We have to reckon it. And this is not, well, I reckon this is true. This is the word for imputing. Crediting something. Something was credited to us. Look in verse 11 and then I'll explain this. Paul says in Romans 6, 11, So you also must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does he mean here? The idea of reckon is this simple. If someone walks up to me today and gives me a million dollars in cash... And they say, I'm giving you a million dollars in cash. I want you to take that, and I want you to reckon that in your checking account. First of all, if you'd like to do that, 
Let, just feel free. I will give all of it to the building project to fully fund it, okay? And the rest we'll do whatever with. But here's the point. You give me a million dollars in cash and we take it and we put it right into our, my checking account. You know what? I have some information now that I can write a check for the remaining 300 and some thousand dollars that we need to raise for our four-year project up here and we'll be done. And my $300,000 check that I write, it's going to be good. You want to know why? Because I know there's a million dollars in my account. Because I reckoned it. I put it in there. But I've got to write the check. And when I write the check, I have full confidence in something. What do I have the confidence in? That the money is in my account. Now listen. As a believer in Jesus, when you got saved, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, your new nature, the new life of Christ, who lives inside of you, has given you the power that you can now reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is just truth. This is truth that believers need to know. And, you know, people say, well, this is deep. The Romans had been saved for just a few years. And Paul's already sharing this truth with them. You know why? Because if you don't know this, you don't live it. It's kind of like the story of the person who struggled with their eternal security. They just didn't feel like they were saved. The person who was walking across the lake in the middle of winter would get down on the ice and get down on their hands and knees and they would skim across that ice and they'd hear a crack and they'd panic and they'd go get them a stick and a board and they would scuffle out over the ice waiting for it to crack and all of a sudden they heard a big rumble. They looked behind them and here come a great big team of horses right across this pond. Boom, 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 boom. And the person looked over and saw the carriage go across. He thought, my gracious, if that whole carriage of horses go across, what am I down here on my hands and knees for? He reckoned that the ice was thick enough to handle the carriage. It, it would handle him. The same is true in our life. There are certain things we have to know before we have assurance of, and this is one of them. The fourth step is after we reckon, we figure this, we understand it, we accept it, we believe it, now we get to our key text. Now it's time that I know with full confidence that I can present my members as members of righteousness, as weapons of righteousness, not unrighteousness. And when I'm tempted to do that, God gives me the strength and the power to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Paul says again, do not present your members as sin, members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And then the final step to free us is obedience. Obedience. We are to obey. Obey. Look at what he writes in Romans 6, 16. This is a wonderful chapter, by the way. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one to who you obey? Now get this concept. Paul says, you've got a choice here in the Christian life. Jesus has given you the power of the new man to say no and to not present your members as members of sin. But now, 
You have a freedom. You're a slave of one thing or the other, one person or the other. You're either a slave to righteousness through Jesus or you're a slave to unrighteousness through your sin nature. Which one are you going to be a slave to? This is what he's saying. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone, the sin nature or Christ's new nature, as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one to who you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So we must choose to obey. And if we obey, there's blessing. Now the most taken out of context verse, Romans 3 or 6.23, you all remember that? The wages of sin is... Okay, Christian, I know you use this for unbelievers all the time. But Paul used it for believers. If you as a Christian choose to yield your members to unrighteousness, know this, the wages of your sin are going to bring you to death. Not eternal death, not eternal damnation, but you go out and live in immorality, greed, jealousy, anger, strife, this, that, and the other as a Christian, you're going to lose your inheritance in the eternal kingdom, and it's going to ultimately end up in death for your life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God... That is the new man who's living inside of you, who empowers you, who enables you to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. That new, that new man, that gift of God is eternal life. And the way you got it is through Jesus Christ our Lord. He gave that to you as a free gift and put it in your checking account. You have to reckon that to be true. The best illustration of this whole concept came from a missionary named Willard Clark. Clark was leaving his mission station in Africa to visit some native villages. And as his associates drove down a narrow pathway, they heard a scream in the underbrush. Clark took his rifle and began plunging his way through the underbrush until he came to a small clearing there was a young African boy bleeding badly because he had just been severely mauled by an African lion. The lion was standing on the side of the clearing waiting to pounce on the boy to finish him off when Clark raised his rifle and shot the lion dead just as it was about to take its last step. They picked up the boy and took him back to the mission compound to care for him and after several weeks in the infirmary, the boy was strong enough to go back to his village in the bushland. Some months later, Clark was sitting on the open front porch of his mission home, rocking in his chair and enjoying the sunset of the cool evening breeze. But as he looked down the open pathway leading to the mission, he saw a procession. As it came closer, he saw that it was the same little boy leading the procession. He came up to Clark's home and asked Clark if he recognized him. The missionary assured him that he did, and then the young boy said, Sir, I have come to give myself to you this day to become your servant for the rest of my life. Mr. Clark responded and said, Young man, this is not required of you. You don't need to do that. I would have done that for anyone. Then the young boy said, Sir, you do not understand the law of the jungle. The law of the jungle is this. 
If anyone has saved us from certain death, that life of ours now belongs to the one who saved us. You saved me from certain death, and according to our law of the jungle, my life belongs to you. I have come to give myself to you. There are my friends behind me who are carrying all my possessions to leave at your home today. I belong to you. His friends came up, put all the boy's possessions at the feet of the missionary. As Mr. Clark finished telling this experience in his life, he said this, For the first time, I actually began to realize what it must mean to Jesus for one of his children whom he has saved from both the penalty and the presence of sin to give everything they have back to him. It's the law of the jungle. Now let me ask you a question. Knowing what you know, are you ready to give your life to Him? He doesn't ask you to live it. He doesn't ask you to produce it. He just simply asks you to understand the truth and the reality and let Him live through you. One little girl was the best theologian I heard. She said, when sin comes knocking at the door, let Jesus answer. Let Him answer. So the point is, is that you and I, for our position in Christ, not our love for Christ, is why we offer ourselves to Him. Your love is not enough, but your position is. Anderson goes on to write, the believer's basis for dedication of their life is freedom from the prison where the sin nature was the warden. We have been set free, and it is because of our position in Christ, not our love, that we should offer ourselves to Him. Oh, what love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. The next time that you are tempted to sin, you remember the law of the jungle and who it is that saved you from the lion who was about to devour. Father, this morning we thank you for this truth. It's heavy for us sometimes to understand, but oh God, how rich to know that we belong to you. You saved us. From the devouring jaws of sin and death. And gave us new life in Christ. Forgiveness of our sin. But you gave us more than that. You gave us the power and the resources and the ability to say no to sin. Help us, Father, not to live out the lust of the flesh. But instead to be led by the Spirit. Because of our position in Jesus and the new life that He's given us. So this week as we face challenges and trials, help us, Father, to know where we stand and what is in our bank account. It is the power of the new life of Jesus. And I pray that You will help us to live by the law of the jungle. We thank You and we dedicate our lives to You today. Not because of our great love for you, but because of the great position 
that we have in Jesus Christ this morning. We are children of the King. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.